In every age, God raises people up to speak the truth to the world in a way that is currently relevant. Though our opinions should not be held with the same esteem as the biblical canon, we still carry the hope of Christ to the world. Our society has forgotten what it means to follow Christ. The bright lights of truth seekers are barely visible in the dim twilight of a post-Judeo-Christian society. We all see the darkness coming. All we can hope is to share the light that he has entrusted to us. This is Modern Apocrypha. This is Modern Apocrypha, where apparently I delete whole segments of things and we have to re-record them. Yay! Oh, it's always fun to hang out, so I'm not going to complain about that. Well, absolutely. Well, and and then we're, you know, we're doing this whole thing with a new studio recording system thing online, and it's they'll never know. It's but great. We can explain it. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, it's great, but learning how to use it properly and learning what it does and doesn't do properly is apparently a thing. So. Well, and the whole day today is is to figure out the new software. Well, and uh, that's part of it. We do have other, I do have other things I need to get to. But um, anyway, what we were talking about and what we're going to talk about again, all over again, is this clash in the narrative of the dialectic. And so uh, to back up a little bit explain and explain to people who haven't listen to some of our older episodes, what the dialectic is. Imagine that the world is a chessboard and that there are two sides playing on the chessboard, a light side and a dark side. But spoiler alert, they're both played by the enemy. They're both played by spiritual forces that are inimical to humans. And Christians are sort of off to one side doing our own thing, but we don't fight the same battles. It's like Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, I would have people here to fight you. Well, he he doesn't fight this world's power battles. Instead, he has other objectives. And those objectives are far more uh, important and far-reaching, but they really don't affect the balance of power in the immediate term very often. Okay. So through the dialectic, in this um, power struggle of uh, forces, we're we're seeing through... The topic of uh, peak oil uh, for the topic of the episode and uh, through Bitcoin. And what was the ETF that you were describing before? What's it called specifically? Well, there there are 11 of them. Which one did you want? Just that there was a happening, right? Okay. Um, So so to paint the big picture for people real quick, and I'll try to do a little bit of better job of this now that we get to take two on it. Sure. Um, The idea is that there are two narratives in the dialectic one is call it the the dark side of the dialectics narrative and that is basically human use of energy is bad okay and that we know as just reasonable rational human beings we know that human use of energy means human flourishing it's required it's necessary it's they're part and parcel you have to have it Sure, sure, and and I'm jumping I'm jumping ahead in our conversation because we've already had the conversation. But um, the way that that you have to find a happy middle ground balance, you could use too much energy in the way that say China is building buildings just to tear them down and build them up again and tear them down and build them up again. Again, where's the human flourishing? That's waste. Right, right. Well, and and the point here is just that human use of energy is just human use of energy and products and whatever. It isn't necessarily good or bad in itself. It just is. And there is plenty of material and energy available on the earth to be used. We just have to pick the most economical, most efficient, and hopefully the most, the least damaging to the world around us to use. Right. Sure. And then, so that's, that's kind of the left, the left side's narrative, the the dialectic, the the right side, the light side of the dialectics narrative is that human use of energy is good because human flourishing is good because human self-sovereignty is good. And 
These two narratives are clashing really hard lately in some pretty interesting ways. This occurs to me, and this is a new topic. I hadn't come up with this before, but we have had um, the same thing said in two different directions just recently where my body, my choice, let me kill my baby, not my body, not my choice, force a jab in my arm. So the same my body, my choice doesn't apply to vaccines, but does apply to kill my baby. I mean, that abortion. So I don't I don't know how this comes into the into this particular uh, the dialectic saying the same thing for a purpose. Right. What that what is said, what words are said are less important than where they're trying to push you. And and I guess this is this is the other thing is that the one side of the dialectic does not care. Well, neither side really cares about our opinion about our free speech they you know the one side of the dialectic pretends to and they attract people who are free speech advocates because human being because the dialectic is effective because human beings can't help but take one side in an argument we just kind of have to it's in our nature almost and the enemy plays off of that so when no, one side is saying things like Jesus Christ helps me with that so often and so much where it just hits me. It's not from me. It's not from my environment, but stop. You're being fooled. Do this thing, not this or that or the other. Well, that's, over there. that's a perfect callback to what we had originally talked about with Israel, right? Where you'd said, we stand with Israel. And I'm like, mm-hmm. uh, and you said, and then the next episode you came back and you said, no, I was corrected on that. Right. I was corrected. Not like I, right. I had a different idea. I was corrected. <laughs> right. Well, and, and that's the case is, we we follow Christ. We don't follow one side of the dialectic. And if we listen, he, he will point out to us when we're being fooled. There's mm. another one. And, it's, uh... and just, just to be clear on what we just said, for people who didn't hear that whole discussion, um, God made an eternal covenant with Israel. They are his people. The government of Israel is an entirely different can of worms. And with what's going on in the power realms in this world, what is currently called Israel may or may not be representative of God's people, Israel, or of what God is doing there. So when it comes to God's people, Israel, we are both very much in favor of God and what he has for his people and good things. We don't always appreciate what human power hierarchies do co-opting the words god has put on things anyway go on with what you were saying so one of the one of the current ones that i'm also seeing out there you know in the in the the interwebs there was a question asked and i believe it was elon musk don't quote me on that but i think it was elon that uh, had answered back with the way things are now if i've got two applicants in front of me that are qualified for the position one of them's a white guy and one of them's not of course, I've got to hire the not white guy because the way that, you know, affirmative action, he fits more boxes. I've got to, right? I'm admitting I would, not that I'd care to, but I would. Um, and it, to me, that just strikes me as picking one of two choices that is a false choice. You have two qualified people. Do you have a thousand more? Can I get 20,000 more? This is Elon Musk we're talking about, or Bill Gates, or anybody else that's got a billion dollars in their pants, right? You got a billion dollars. How many qualified people can I have? Not, not, do I take one or the other? Remove that from your head. That's that's somebody else talking. How many can I get? Well, depending on the task, that's certainly the case, you know. You got smart people with a brain in their head. I can find a job for them. Well, that that is the case in some sense, but that actually runs up against my Christian beliefs in some ways. And here's what I mean by that. As a Christian, God knows what it is I need to do. You know, I spent a lot of years working with a very talented group of guys, a very serious, very skilled, very talented group of guys building machines that are complicated machines that make food. And it was, it was incredibly difficult for me. I was plenty smart for the thing. I could do a good job. I made enough money, but the problem was 
well, there were two problems, but one of the big ones was that God did not make me in a way that that was, that would call to me. I could do it, but it wasn't the place where I was going to flourish, where I was supposed to be. And now I'm kind of moving into that. And I was just upstairs talking to my wife and man, it is so different. It is so different. It is so much better. You want to wake up every day. You're excited to to do something every time, and I'm ex- I'm excited to to write new stories and and yeah, we need to go over some of that later. Even I mean, we've got you know interesting things coming on. It's it's fun. It's enjoyable, and it it helps people, and that's amazing. There are a lot of positives there, um, and for those people that uh, you know, maybe they they see the good in other things. There are lots of um, things I, I do feel like the vast majority of people I've ever met are always in that space that they'd like to be good. Right? They may not understand how to get there. They may not understand sure. religion. They may not understand exactly how to put their finger on it, but they want to be good. Well, and, and that's true to a point. They want, okay, so <laughs> this is a bit of a, this is a bit of a rabbit trail, but let's hit it real fast and then we can come back to the main topic. Um, people don't want to be good. They want to feel like they're good. They want to feel like the hero of their story. They want to feel like the good guy. How they actually are is a lot less important to them unless truth is important to them. And so most people, whether it's Bill Gates or Elon Musk or Klaus Schwab or you name it, they feel like the good guy in their personal story most of the time. And it doesn't matter whether they're That's actually doing good cast or of human not. Beings you pick there. Huh? That's a special cast of human beings you pick there. Right. I'm talking about people who are kind of outside of the realm of other people's influence to a degree where they can kind of set their own rules. It's the same, the same is true for you and me, but we operate under a lot more constraints where we got to feed our families, man. We got to, we got to take care of the people around us. And we are a lot more subject to outside pressures than they are. They kind of decide what they want. They all feel like the good guys, whether they are or not. And none of them are. Even though they feel like it, even though they have engineered their world to feel like the good guys, they're not. Because they're less interested in the truth than they are in feeling like the good guys. And maybe they accomplish good things. You know, God institutes people for those reasons sometimes. But when it comes right down to it, as a Christian, I know that to actually be the good guy, you have to hold truth up as the most important thing about yourself. You have to value the truth far more than anything else in order to put yourself in a category where you can actually do or be good in any meaningful way. I have to agree. Um, the Not just the seeking of truth, but even the seeking of a, a proper definition of the, of the concept, right? You can't just... Yep hear it and say oh yeah right once you you stop oh this is my truth yeah my truth oh good god oh my god yeah so had you ever expected me to say those words (laughs) yeah i would never present my truth i would i would present uh god's truth or the truth as i see it or yeah the the best that we can do the best we know this is the truth as best we can determine right Uh, so far as i can tell there is no lie in this right and and you know, there are places where I'm wrong, but it's really hard for me to change my opinion when I'm, when I've spent so much effort coming to it, which sort of brings us back around to the current clash in the narrative. So we've got the one side of the narrative, which is um, human use of energy is bad because human use of resources is bad because humans bad is basically the narrative. And the other side is human flourishing and human energy are good, which is much closer to the truth. It's it's almost right. Um, we have to have some amount of stewardship and proper use of those resources, right? That's that's sort of the clash of the, the two ideas where you would 
hopefully get a proper balance, but you can't because really you need a perspective that includes the almighty God and what he wants of us and how we ought to treat his world that he put under our dominion, because that's the only perspective I can think of in which we can come up with a healthy way to use resources. But the point is still, you've got those two sides of the dialectic and they're really pushing back and forth. And one example of that, and if, you know, we want to take a break in about 15 minutes or so, but before that, let's, let's talk about Bitcoin for a sec. Right. So in the same so, concept with the Bitcoin, the way that um, um, your body, your choice meant one thing on one topic and meant a different thing under another topic so that they could get their way. Um, what is it that you're telling me about the Bitcoin fight that has a left right lean that they and when what why do you think that they're saying what they're saying what's the end goal they're aiming at okay so i'm finding it really interesting because we've got this sort of political divide where um just for anybody who doesn't know there have recently been uh, 11 bitcoin etfs approved these are bitcoin exchange traded funds and just just to explain to the audience who doesn't understand what that means, financial institutions and big companies can't directly buy most products. Instead, they have to buy a sanitized version of it that's owned by a custodian. So whether it's gold or lumber or steel or copper or whatever, they have to own a company that owns a specific amount of that that's usually held by an entirely different person. But the, the idea is that if you own this ETF, you own a certain amount of this thing, whether it's oil or gold or whatever, you own a certain amount of it because the ETF company is required by law to own a representative quantity of that thing that you then are, quote, owner of. Too many counterparties in there for me. I don't like it, but... That's how they do things in big money circles. And the government, because it is kind of under the control of the left side of the dialectic right now, it's under control of the dark side of the dialectic, it has been resisting putting in these Bitcoin ETFs for a long time because Bitcoin bad, because Bitcoin use energy, because Bitcoin good for human flourishing the left side of the dialectic, the woke side doesn't like it. Interesting that that's so, a verbalization about it, but I don't feel like that's the actual reasons why they say those things. They say those things as a cover for what they, they actually want, which is control of money. Well, and, and that's, yeah, that's right. They but here's, they don't care about the, the, the amount of power. They don't care about the amount of waste. They don't care about how many billions of dollars they give to some terrible country that's going to use that to just literally bathe in their own poo, right? It, it doesn't matter to them. No, it doesn't. And and you're right. I think that at base, their their motivation really is power over and control over the money because the dark side of the dialectic is more characterized by tyranny, where the light side of the dialectic is more characterized by individual human flourishing and self-sovereignty. Um, and so the dark side of the dialectic has not wanted these Bitcoin ETFs approved, but a U.S. court came back to the SEC, the Securities and Exchange Commission that oversees these things, and told them, either you come up with a good reason or you approve this stuff. Your constant denials of this are not going to stand. So the court actually ruled in favor of the light side of the dialectic and is allowing these Bitcoin ETFs to go into place. Now, there are a couple of things that go into this, um, but the one that's the most obvious and most interesting is that there are a couple of huge financial companies. One of them is Vanguard. They have $7 trillion worth of assets under management. That's a company portfolios, that's people's retirement, that's all the different things you can imagine that are financial products. They they manage those for people. That's Vanguard. And they have an insurance division and they have a banking division. They have all the, you know, they're a huge financial conglomerate company. Um, 
and then Merrill Lynch, which is a subsidiary of somebody you know, and I can't remember the name off. The May name. I offer a reason why the dark side would change their position? Just as a to uh, what their position on um, including the uh, ETFs and approving it, right? Uh, acting like they don't want it approved, and oh, it's terrible, even though it's happening. The reason that they would um, likely include it or, or want it is the idea that uh, you take your money out of their pocket and you put it into your Bitcoin because you trust Bitcoin and Bitcoin is not under their control. So now they don't have the funds to invest in whatnot that they were having before. They need to keep up with the younger generation and where their money is going. So if they can get everybody into a Vanguard Bitcoin, then they can vote 200 million people as one person with one button press. And then you'll be one person fighting their 230 million people because they're all giving up all their rights to Vanguard through. The you would think I you would think, but that's not what's happening right now. OK, what's happening right now is that Vanguard and Merrill Lynch have flatly refused to allow any of their customers assets to go into any Bitcoin ETF. So if you want your assets to go into a Bitcoin ETF, you have to remove them from the management of Merrill Lynch or Vanguard. You don't have a choice. I see. And it's because it's because they see these Bitcoin ETFs as morally wrong, or that's the excuse. But as you said, the, the base reason for the that is that they want control over the money. And so we see these two sides of the dialectic clashing here where Fidelity and BlackRock and some of the other big uh, ones have got their ETFs out there. Um, I don't remember which one of them it was, but one of the tickers for it is HODL, H-O-D-L, which is a very common uh, expression in Bitcoin circles, meaning hold on for dear life to your Bitcoin. So the ticker for their ETF is HODL. And that's pretty funny. That is interesting. Um, but by the same token here, there's... Um, what would I say? On, on the other side of this, this ETF thing is very interesting because it is, in a sense, a play by the powers that be to put pieces into place to eventually be able to control Bitcoin itself. This is the beginning of that movement. Okay, okay. There's also a question I see in this particular topic where um, I've heard it said that if there's one free speech platform, it forces everybody to accept free speech because you have something to compare to. If you've got one real money system that people are uh, putting their retirements into, how long does it take half a generation, a quarter of a generation before everyone goes, well, I'm not going to put my money in anything else? Two years, five years, five years max. Before they can't mess with it. It's worth something. They can only mess up their own currencies, right? So they they don't have a choice. And this is this is one of the things about Bitcoin that is really entertaining to watch. In some sense, is the game theory of Bitcoin is a force of nature, man. You see today, you see BlackRock and Fidelity and some of the others getting into it. I don't know how long it will take for Vanguard to be forced to play the game, but the bottom line is when you can own the hardest currency in the world, the harder that currency gets and the, the scarcer it is. And right now there are people who say that Bitcoin has perfect scarcity, but that's nonsense right now because the supply is currently increasing. There is currently internal inflation, which means that the way it acts on the market in an actual sense is not quite as hard as it will be in the future. We are coming up in the next two months, three months, on a halving. And a halving is when the amount of Bitcoin that's awarded as a base block reward for mining Bitcoin is cut in half. And what that means is that the internal inflation rate of Bitcoin is cut in half, and it will be the scarcest asset in the world at that point, as far as I can tell, the scarcest divisible asset, right? You know, you've got things like the Mona Lisa and Starry Night, these paintings that are absolutely scarce assets, 
the original is a one of a kind, but they aren't divisible. They aren't, they aren't something that you can buy some amount of without counterparty risk. Like, you know, a conglomerate of people could buy Starry Night, but who cares? That's kind of weird. Nobody really wants to do that. That's not how humans work. But if you can buy a Bitcoin or a part of a Bitcoin, you know, if you Bitcoin really is just a hundred million Satoshis, twenty two hundred Satoshis in a dollar. If you can buy a million Satoshis right now, if you can be a Satoshi millionaire, who cares? You you that's yours. You own that. That's a human thing. We like that. I see. I see. Yeah, the only time that you would uh, group purchase a uh, high value asset is to store and resell and split the profits. That's the reason for doing so. I guess the other yep. reasons might be that you have a, a cultural um, attachment. Say we had um, the first American flag and we got a bunch of Americans together sure. to put in a museum because we cared. Right. That that could yeah. certainly happen. Mm -hmm. That could certainly. I could I could totally see that. Yeah. Rock. We say Flymouth Rock. Yeah. But the point is, we don't think of that as money. Where no. We think of gold as money, and right now Bitcoin's inflation rate is slightly higher than gold's average inflation rate. In a few months, it will be half of that, which which makes it then scarcer. So, the the game theory here that's totally amusing and cool is just how strong the motivation is for a financial company to own the hardest asset in the world. They don't even realize it, but the fact that they're getting into Bitcoin is required because other people already owned it. They were getting pushed out of the market slowly. And once one of them owns it, then everybody who's competing directly with them has to own it or they get pushed out of the market more and more and more rapidly as people come to the realization of how valuable it is. And that's the and idea of going to like a department store that has the other things you want as, as well as the main thing you want. So once you right. got all the products, if you don't have a product, people stop shopping with you because they don't, can't get all of their shopping done in one spot. It is another that's it. human psychology issue. Yep. You said it. And you know, so, so that game theory, it will be really curious to watch and see how long Vanguard can maintain this stance. My guess is less than a year. Within a year, they'll have a Bitcoin ETF. That's my guess. Almost certainly within two. But I, I sort of think that we're looking at a five to 10 year window for hyper Bitcoinization probably at this point. So somewhere between five and 10 years from now, we will see every country in the world having to adopt Bitcoin. That's kind of where we're heading. And, it, and it's because it is the scarcest asset. It's the one that everything else is based on. And I will say that I'm afraid of it. I think that it is a scary concept. I think the idea that um, I can go get a, 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 a crate of chiclets from Mexico for pesos and they work hard and they get their pesos and they have a nice house and everything on pesos. But that results in me getting something from Mexico cheaper because their general money is cheaper than mine. And that idea that everyone across the entire planet, it's very religiously appropriate. I mean, it's fair and moral, I suppose, to do so. It's still scary, though. The idea that everyone everywhere gets paid the same kind of denomination for labor. Well, and, and I think, you know, when we had a gold standard, when technology was moving slow enough that gold could keep up with the need for cash flow movement, and that allowed for a gold standard, which we don't have now. We can't do that now. There but are when other it issues. was possible. Huh? There are other issues. Like what? When gold was the standard, there was no way possible that pick a country, uh, a Kenya, someone from Kenya could look at their phone and or any paper, any media source of the time and know that someone in Delaware was getting an ounce of gold per bag of wheat and they were getting an ounce of gold per, cr uh, per uh, cart of wheat. That's effectively what I just said. Okay. That, that money and information move too fast now for gold to be an effective unit of exchange. 
it can be a store of value and it probably will for a very long time until. But that doesn't address the idea that the guy in the place that is where all of the wheat is will have a lower price for wheat because it's all sitting there. And the guy that's uh, buying wheat in a place where there is no wheat pays more for it. There's no, yeah. there's no explaining yeah. that to, to the people of the world that are getting the less money. They don't care. They don't understand. So what? So they die. Who cares? Starve. Yeah. Okay. That's a problem. The point is that, that doesn't, well, except it's really not a problem because, well, it's a social problem, same as any other problem we have, but, but it's not really a, a, a physical difficulty. It's a social issue. We have everybody in the world is capable of producing enough value that they could eat in a way that is not actually destructive to themselves if they had the culture and the values that allowed it. But culturally, we don't have that. Um, anyway, so my observation was just that this game theory is going to be fun to watch. And right now we see this clash of narratives where these two big financial companies are just refusing to own Bitcoin ETFs or to let their customers use Bitcoin ETFs on, quote, moral grounds. And that's interesting. Very interesting. Very unusual um, perspective. I, I, I am... Not entirely sure. I'd have to do a little bit of research to see when they began, but I do feel like we've got some financial institutions that were co-opted into the FBI CIA during the Bush junior years when we basically nationalized 401ks. Well, you've, you've got it kind of backward there in a sense in that, yes, there is an interpenetration of government and corporate, but which direction the instruction flows is a very big question. There's got it doesn't be, come from the government anymore. There's got to be some exceptionally high level handshaking to get to be the Vanguard or the BlackRock or whatever company name that goes for Walmart's 401k and t Target's 401k and those companies that are so big that the employees have no no understanding of their financial institution. Right. When you've got a company of thousands of people, then those companies um, connections require such a big wig handshake that it's not like you or I could get that contract. No, that's true. But but the point is, it's the companies controlling the government more than the government controlling the companies. <clears throat> there is interpenetration there, but it's the direction of it. It isn't that the government has taken them over. That's or that the CIA has taken them over, it's way more complicated and way more messy than that. And with that, you want to go to a break? We certainly can. Yep. All right. Have a great time. Thanks, everyone. We'll see you here in a minute. Back in a minute. Modern Apocrypha is brought to you by Bright Star, the forthcoming book by me, Jared Michaud, due to hit shelves April of 2024. For pre-release copies, head over to e6universe.com. Use the promo code Israel for 10% off with your order. I'd like to take a moment to thank all the people enjoying Modern Apocrypha. As many of you can see, I'm an avid coffee drinker, and I've been drinking North Arrow coffee for a couple of pounds now. You can find North Arrow Coffee at northarrowcoffee.co, all one word, where they list coffee of the month and how green coffee is handled. I've been enjoying some of the number four Honduras and some of the number 10 Peru available at northarrow.co. If you'd like to help support us even more, you can use discount code E6 for 10% off your coffee order today. Thank you. And we're back. And we're back. Welcome back, everyone. So, we we finished talking about government sort of co-opting financial institutions. And I, I think that the, the problem with this is that people are used to thinking of government as being the directing force. Government is where the power is. Government is where the the decisions are made and everybody dances to the government tune. 
And in this case, it's not that simple anymore. Um, anymore, all the rules that we live by are made by regulatory agencies that take their suggestions on how they make their rules from the companies that they're supposed to be ruling. The big companies are the ones who decide what the government's rules are and how they're changed in today's world. And that basically the problem isn't that they're interpenetrated because you're right about that. They are the, the government and those financial institutions. We don't know where they stop and where they start. It's like what we discovered with Twitter and Facebook and the other social media companies where the FBI was routinely re instructing them to take things down and they just listened. They just did it. They didn't, there was no freedom of speech. There was no, there was no transparency as to what was being done. It was all agenda-driven communication uh, manipulation. Well, the same is true on the financial side in some sense, but the question is, who is telling whom what to do? And in this case, I think what we see is a very interesting outworking of that push-pull where the government right now because of the who's running it would just as soon not have bitcoin etfs at all and the the this judge said nope you have to do this and now they don't have a choice and so these bitcoin etfs are being approved and realistically there's no reason they shouldn't be based on current rules but the the whole thing is really interesting because there is that question of where the push pull is going on. Who is actually calling the shots and where are they? And at that point, I have to point back to the spiritual layer again and say, well, we live in a, a place where there are these spiritual forces that have this dialectic push going on in different directions. And they're sort of the ones who are pushing the buttons and calling the shots. And what falls out from that on the human level is, really interesting to watch because it points back to what's going on on a spiritual level. It certainly does. I don't know, it occurs to me that we have a case in point of corporations asking for regulation in the topic of artificial intelligence presently. Um, I know that um, in the housing market crash um, uh, Hollywood movie that was produced, there was the, the, banking uh, professionals that said you've got to bail us out or everything crashes and that was very much the corporate side saying what needed to happen uh, yep. and it did sure sure and so certainly you would ask a source matter uh, expert a source matter expert on a topic if you didn't know and who can you ask about a topic like the corporate uh, uh, sphere without asking the corporate entity itself but the initial like begging for some kind of regulation does feel like somewhat necessary. Is that just, it feels that way and it's not true? Well, it's a question of where are the decisions being made? Who is actually deciding what happens? And I think today, if you can point at it, it is far more on a corporate level that the, those decisions are being made, whether it's Larry Fink or Elon Musk or, you know, whoever it is, Warren Buffett, I don't know. I don't know who's actually making decisions about some of this stuff, but it looks like it's coming from the corporate and the corporate is sort of either strong arming or just massaging the government to get what it wants. And there's some kind of push pull going on, but the government's hold on power is weakening very consistently to say that there are aren't still people in the government who hold an ideal and an ethical standard that's higher sure there are but it doesn't really have that much effect anymore it isn't a it doesn't control what's going on the way it did it was an interesting place that we're in so anyway let's move on to the peak oil thing before we lose too much more time here Indeed, indeed. Let me do a quick uh, uh, reference as to what peak oil means. Uh, peak oil is a uh, general concept that uh, we would hit a maximum amount of um, oil specifically um, as researched by a gentleman named Hubert. Let me see if I can get his first name up for us. Um, 
the Hubert Peak Theory by... What is the gentleman's first name? I should have looked it up before we started. Um, does it matter? It does. It isn't terribly important for his uh, full name, but he uh, was born in 1908, died in 1986. He mm-hmm. is um, sort of a previous generation thinker. Um, he worked for Shell, right, as a yep. in oil company, and he had the idea that we would hit a total amount of, of uh, oil. We wouldn't be able to get any more at some point, right? We'd, we'd have the most we were ever pulling out of the ground at any one time. And then it would start to decline. Right. And then even if we did everything we could, we would never be able to pull that amount out of the ground again. And right. then well, that... what you're talking about is what you're talking about is a throughput measure, not an amount measure. Right. So it's a case of how much are we getting at a time or, you know, how much are, how, did we pull out this year and we'll never match this year again? Right. That's so what we, you're have, we have 100 million barrels, 200 million barrels, you know, a billion barrels, however many. <clears throat> pardon me whatever it is and that number would be the uh, a maximum uh, at some point and then that was grabbed by college lefties um yep. and and misinterpreted in some way certainly the 1950s technology from the gentleman that was born in 1908 wouldn't apply to 2025 technology anyway in addition yeah. to that um if you actually look at the predicted numbers they don't even line up. We, we've reproduced more after it was predicted, right? So it was a, it was a poor prediction yeah. to begin with. Well, and and actually, when you go back to the base of it, in a sense, he was right. There's just one little term you have to change, and that is with current technology and technique. And so, just so people understand how the economy actually works a little better. If you have a particular technique for pulling oil out of the ground, that doesn't mean it's the only way you can ever do it. What it means is that it is currently the easiest and most economical method that people have developed in a way that they can they can use at scale, right? So when that method starts to fall off in capability, what that does is it forces the price of oil higher and then people start to do R&D to develop new methods because there's money to be made in making oil cheaper, making oil easier. And you can actually broaden that out and say energy. So what you're dealing with here is a supply and demand function where as things get more difficult and more expensive to do, there is more pressure to do things in a more economic fashion. So you'll have these waves of supply and demand where you can get things easier for a while and then it's a little harder and they work out a new way to do it or they start to move to a new material. So here's another example. It used to be that they always used platinum in car exhaust systems for um, a particular catalyst. You have to have a catalyst for pulling the uh, for, for burning the exhaust properly, okay? They always used platinum, but platinum got to be so expensive. They started looking around going, what else can we do? How else can we do this? And they found palladium. Okay, palladium is a sister metal. It works similarly. You have to do things a little differently. You have to retool things a little bit. Your process is a tiny bit different. So you can't do every year. If you're going to do all platinum, you can't just substitute palladium straight up. You have to do the process a little differently. But the the market pressure got to be enough that it was cheaper to use palladium, so they moved over to using palladium. And this is a great example. And then it, and then it moved back, okay? Because you you start to get these these places where you can get more of the one than the other, and it moves back and forth now, which is kind of interesting. But the point is, as as market demand for something goes up and the price to produce it goes up, people are incentivized to find a new way to do it. And because of the ingenuity God gave human beings, we're always going to find a way to accomplish the goal given time and opportunity. And people, individuals who are, you know, looking for, you know, they're hungry, they're looking for a way to make their millions, whatever, they're looking for a way to make their money, they have a good idea, they'll go out and find a way to get around the problem, whatever the problem is. 
and that's that is the basis of the economy that's how the economy works sadly and that's why often, it works sadly most often i find that the uh, the challenge that is overcome is just changing the name um if it were steve's catalytic converter with uh, uh palladium and joe's uh, joe's clean air services they didn't call it a catalytic converter because there were rules and regulations about catalytic converters, but catalytic converters use that metal. This doesn't use that metal, so it can't be that, right? You can just change sure. the name. We could have done the same thing with oil because there's bitter and there's sweet. They are a different thing. But we want everything to be the same because we've got the, the uh, petrodollar. So keeping everybody and everything in the same bucket and not allowing it to be classified as anything else of keeps anybody from using any other monetary source. Sure. And so anyway, as far as peak oil specifically goes, this notion that there would be a peak production at the, with the current technique, and then the technique would change is correct, but that there is a peak total production totally ignores the idea that when there's market pressure to find a new way to do something, we'll find a new way to do something. It's like the horizontal drilling that they developed and the fracking allowed for a tremendous spike in the production of oil. We've got way more capacity to produce it now than we do to use it. It's just we don't have the economic uh, impetus to go get it. And, you know, if let's say let's say the peak oil people were correct and that that we were going to run out which i don't actually think because of abiotic oil we can get back to that in a minute though let's say we were going to run out then the impetus would be find a find an energy source that can do the same thing as oil that is you know the next cheapest thing to produce and then iterate on it until it's cheap and this is actually where Bitcoin comes in. We talked about Bitcoin being sort of a pioneer species for energy. So it goes and finds the, the cheapest places to produce energy. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, if, you, if you're looking for that, that's, the, that's a great way to get it because Bitcoin's going to go find it, man. So in, in reality, what we're actually doing is we're just, we're just creating market pressure to create energy and human ability to create energy is not going away. We'll just find better and better ways to do it because that's the way humans have been designed by their creator. Now, when you talk about things like peak oil though, that's assuming that oil is a fossil fuel and I hate that name. Real quick before we, huh? I hate that word. Uh, the, the naming structure is a falsehood. You know where it came from? It came from Rockefeller. Did it? Yeah. We'll get into that one second. Let me put in one thing real quick here first, just as a principle for people. If you believe something that goes along with the narrative of the bad guys, the dark side of the dialectic, because... I don't know. <clears throat> you better examine it real close, guys, because they're almost always wrong and they're almost always lying. And the amount of truth that they put into their narrative is way lower than the amount of truth that the enemy has to put into the light side of the dialectics narrative. So when you're when you're following a narrative that goes along with the dark side of the dialectic, beware, it's probably false not just in one or two ways, not just at a base level, but systematically and systemically. And when we look at oil production, first off, fossil fuel was a term that was uh, invented by Rockefeller, as I understand it, to make oil seem more scarce so that he could make more money. And that has come down through time as a fairly common thing. Um, but the reality is when you look at the sheer amount of oil that we both have pumped out of the ground and that we have, um, that we, we know is still in the ground, the sheer quantity of it, there's a magnitude problem to start with. The magnitude of the biological material that would be required to create that if you're assuming that it was buried from being on the surface in the great flood or 
something along those lines, which is what most Christians would assume, then you've got a real problem because that that quantity is orders of magnitude too high. We have too much oil for that. It's not it's not feasible to have that much vegetation buried in all of the catastrophic events in all the history of the world put together divided by a thousand. I mean, it's, it's really, really disproportionate. The oil has to be coming from somewhere else for us to have as much of it as we have. There's no way around that. Okay. So that's a magnitude problem. And then there's the, the case that when you look at a lot of the narratives, like, um, I'll pick, pick your favorite narrative that the left likes to push, whether it's the climate crisis or evolution or what have you. When you find a narrative that is common in the mainstream, like this oil is a fossil fuel narrative, you have to go look under a rock somewhere to find the, the reality, the truth of it. And when you start to explore it, it starts to make a lot more sense. I remember reading a paper a while back by a company that was based in Sweden. Guy was doing abiotic oil research. He managed to create some in a lab and it was done using, I don't remember. It was a temperature pressure thing. Um, chemicals were transmuted into a petrochemical form into a carbon form, a uh, carbon fuel form, a hydrocarbon form, I should say. And, so he started theorizing about it and thinking about it and going, well, what if, what if this doesn't work the way we always thought it did? What if instead this is produced chemically within the earth's crusts by the pressure and temperature at particular depths? And if that were the case, how would that look when you would start digging in these particular places? So he came up with a way to predict where he could drill to find oil just based on the patterns that it should be creating in the earth's crust. And guess what he found? He found oil. And the reality is when you actually go, when you don't want to believe a narrative and you go looking for the truth, the truth, alternate sources, things that might conflict and you actually read them, they make a ton of sense in this case. So not only was the peak oil narrative wrong in principle because of the way human beings work and the way God made us? It was wrong in detail because oil isn't nearly as finite a resource as they would have you think. Instead, it's actually kind of just a, a function of the Earth's natural processes. It creates it. And there's a tremendous amount of it there for us to use if we want it. And... Well, you know, even beyond that, if we get past where we can use the oil that's there, that just puts market pressure on finding a better way to do energy. And, you know, maybe nuclear fusion isn't realistic. Maybe it is. But one way or another, we have had these massive scientific advances as time goes on. The odds of not finding another viable way to produce energy are pretty low. We'll, we'll find other things that work and that. Well, the, the connection of story plot lines there, I'm positive that the gentleman was correct about his report for shell and what shell was going to be able to make a profit on. I'm, I'm sure he was correct for shell, not then translated across the entire globe for everyone, everywhere across all time frames. Well, and, and with the current technology and that's the, that's the other key is technology tends to, you know, they say necessity is the mother of invention. The idea is that when you have to invent something because things are getting difficult, that's what impels you to do that. And we find that to be true over and over again. So I don't, you know, I just don't see a good way to get around this. This, this narrative has flaws at every level and we can't I think we'll get around it generationally when the, the people that are mistaken pass away, then we'll get past it. I think that it's too useful for the enemy because they, they have these, these, um, call it fear porn. They, they like to, they like to use fear porn to motivate people. You know, it's like the climate change thing. It used to be that we were going to have a, a huge drop in global 
temperature and then they change their narrative oh we're gonna have a huge rise in global temperature and then you get the whole carbon dioxide thing and really when you actually look at the facts it's it's just the world working the way the world has always worked and we don't have nearly as much effect on things as we think we do and the the system tends to naturally balance because when you add more carbon dioxide to the air you make plants healthier a lot healthier and they consume a lot more of it so it's a self-balancing system sure go figure who would have thought god put us in a world with an elastic self-balancing system that responds to us and preserves our <laughs> environment hmm hmm yeah who'd have thunk it who'd have thunk it oh anybody that uh is of the faith. <laughs> right. Well, well, not it's everybody. Interesting is of that, the faith. Um, there are there are plenty of people who are fooled by this stuff. And totally. I, you know, I have nothing I have nothing if if you're in the position where you believe this or believed this or I'm giving you food for thought or whatever, this isn't a criticism of you. This is just one of those things where you know, God gives us opportunity to learn and we're all going to die wrong about things that matter. And this really doesn't matter that much compared to most things. So I read the article. Learn. They're not trying to let you hear about it. Right. Well, go, go learn, go, you know, expand your, your view on things and, and solidify your, your uh, foundation. That's great. Do that. I hope that's a, a positive uh, contribution for you. What I hope doesn't happen is that I hope people aren't emotionally attached to their, you know, we, we talked in one of our previous episodes about people getting emotionally attached to ideas and how that tends to unbalance you. I hope people aren't emotionally attached to ideas to the point where it unbalances them because it's really easy to get pulled down a wrong track because it looks right. And then you convince yourself that it's right. And so you get this sort of, um, what's that term? You know, the one I'm talking about, the, the, um, cognitive bias that makes you, uh, that makes you confirmation bias. I see. You get this confirmation bias going on where you, it, it looks the way you think it should. So it confirms what you're already thinking. And, and that's, you know, that's all of us, man. Oh, we yeah. all tend to do that. Absolutely. Absolutely. And if you've lived in a particular idea for a very long time, you could have built enemies based on their opinions and opposition and built an entire life around a wrong thought. Well, and politics is kind of in that position right now, right? It's like, <laughs> I suppose it's the subject for the, the next podcast or another podcast, but, but it's like politics right now is like uh, politics in, what was it? Fourth, fifth. Uh, the year 432 or 532 in uh, Constantinople, where uh, the fall of the Byzantine Empire was the next year. And the previous year, they had uh, turned away the guy who invented the cannons that were going to be used to tear down their city. Yeah. So the idea is right now our politics is is in a place where we're we have a technology that is about to flip all the power games in the world on their heads and people just don't see it yet. Well, they may be looking at one technology or over another, as opposed to all of them in concert. Right. Well, and some of them have more impact than others. It's like the whole monetary perfect storm we've got going on. We have a monetary perfect storm. We have a labor discouragement, right? We're discouraging um, improving yourself under the promise that AI is going to do it all for you. So well, we've been discouraging people in a lot of ways for a long time. A and long that, time. that actually comes with the Malthusian side of the, the woke uh, people, bad agenda. The whole uh, population control thing has been a bigger chunk of our, uh, of our environment than any of us really wants to admit for a very long time. You look at how Planned Parenthood was started. You look at how, any number of things in this world, like the modern medical institutions take things on and do things. There's some pretty nefarious crap goes on. It is confusing. It's so nefarious. I mean, I have to wonder <laughs> how it's even profitable if the point is profit. I mean, it's confusing how out of balance it is. Well, this is what you get when you have no natural checks and balances left because the, 
the market has been taken out of play by the regulators who require everybody to do everything wrong. And so there's no way for the market to correct anything. And the government and the corporations are all in collusion. And that's that's where we're at in a lot of ways. But the medical industry has been there longer than about anybody else. And we're reaping that the results of that right now. I think we'll find a, I think we'll find a pretty quick balance in the, uh, the medical industry. I think that we'll see uh, some pretty big changes once we do have uh, non-human actors in front of us. I don't know. I don't know that I agree with that. I think that the enemy's purpose in this world is to kill, steal and destroy. And that the only way to end that really we're, we're, we, well, I, I suspect that we're going to see some parallel society emerging going forward, just because you think you see things like the response to this COVID thing have really pushed people into very, very disparate camps. And some people are just like, screw you all. We're going back to the basics. And that's creating a parallel track that people who really get sick of this insanity can go to, but the enemy isn't going to stop the insanity. The insanity accomplishes his goal of doing harm to humans because God loves humans and the enemy hates us for that reason. And God help us. God help us. Come soon, Lord Jesus. Come soon. Amen. And with that, shall we call it? I think this is a good spot to call for this particular episode. We'll see you again real soon, everyone. Thanks for stopping by. Thanks everybody. Blessings on your week. We'll talk to you later.